Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. listening to our podcast. On this episode, we have Peter McDonald and Joe Schneer from Wonderite, an insurance startup based in Boston. This was a really interesting conversation around how they are improving insurance workflows for agencies around the country through programmatic data aggregation. We talk about their backgrounds, get into the details of the black box industry known as insurance, and how they work with customers on product development. I learned a lot from this conversation. Enjoy. But before we get to the conversation, here is a word from our sponsor, Blockchain Training Conference that I'm really excited about. What if there was an industry educational conference where all of the sessions were focused on teaching you something instead of selling you something? There is, and it's a Blockchain Training Conference 2019. It's going to be hosted August 28th through the 30th in Denver, Colorado. BTC 2019 offers every attendee the chance to leave certified and confident in their understanding of blockchain technology. Move past the jargon to gain a robust understanding of blockchain and cryptocurrencies with masterclasses taught by industry luminaries like Andreas Antonopoulos, Rene Picard, Jameson Lopp, Pamela Morgan, and many others. Register today and learn more at blockchaintraining.org. We also have a coupon code for our listeners that will get you 10% discount for the conference, QuantLayer10. Go to blockchaintraining.org slash attend and hit the buy button for your ticket and put in a coupon code of QuantLayer10. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R and the number 10. We're going to be there at the conference in August, so please reach out to us if you will be there as well. Would love to meet in Meetspace. Hey everyone, you've got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard, and we're also joined today by Wonderite co-founders Peter McDonald and Joseph Schneer. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Thanks Glad for having so I'm going to tell you up front, um, I know we kind of joked about this on email where, you know, this idea of insurance is, you know, kind of like a black box, but it's an industry I really know very little about. So you're going to have to forgive any kind of noob questions on my behalf. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. So we, before we get into Wonderite, would love to hear a little about your guys' backgrounds and how you met. Yeah, of course. Uh, I can jump into that a little bit. This is Joe. So my background, grew up in Central Mass. I went to Northeastern University, undergrad. Northeastern has the co-op program for anyone that's not familiar with that. It's basically a five-year program at Northeastern. And uh, as part of the five years, you do three six-month co-ops, kind of like internships, but they're built into the school year. So for my first co-op, I worked at Liberty Mutual in corporate accounting. Mm -hmm. And then for my second co-op, I worked at GMO, an investment management firm, kind of doing fund accounting. What I realized from these co-ops, working at these big corporations, was that the corporate life was not for me. So kind of taking a step back, my father had run a family business, a wholesale distributor of building materials. Growing up, that was kind of always in the, the background of my life, helped out there when I could. I never thought I would go back there. 
But after my experiences working for these big companies, I wanted something, I wanted a role where I could have a little more impact, have a little more control than, than what I was experiencing. So when I graduated Northeastern 2011, I jumped back to the family business. Again, a wholesale distributor of building materials, two locations, 25 employees. Started off in finance accounting, moved up quickly to running general ops for my father. I did everything for the company, from marketing to sales to IT, again, to kind of running the company on a high level. Worked there for six years, got to a point where I was kind of having conversations with my father. This goes back a few years ago, where we were discussing what my future looked like at LNR, the name of the company. Mm-hmm. He was looking to retire in the next few years. I had to decide whether I wanted to stay in Central Mass and take over the company and that be my future for the next 30 years or so <laughs> or see what else is out there. I always had aspirations of going back to business school, maybe starting my own business. So I shot off a few applications to some Boston-based schools, third round. I got full scholarships to most of them and Boston College being one of them and... So I decided to, uh, to go back to school to make the pivot, see what else is out there. Maybe still go back to the family business, but really want to ideally start my own company, whatever that may be. Somewhat serendipitously, I met Peter day one, very similar background, which he can describe. Yep. And we hit it off. We connected right away. He already had this idea for Wonderite and kind of mocked up images and, and wireframes of what it looked like. And I was very impressed. Insurance insurance technology kind of background to it that I fundamentally understood having bought insurance for family business. I helped out with, you know, business competitions that we went to, different events. I did decide to do an internship. I worked at PwC and M&A Consulting last summer. Our team was basically employee number three at an oil and gas startup. I was traveling down to Houston every week, Monday through Thursday. Did that for three months, by the time I was done, the oil and gas startup was a $2.6 billion publicly traded company. Um, so that was a very neat experience. But again, similar reaction to my three months at PwC was that the corporate life was not for me. I was yep. given a full-time job offer uh, where I would have made close to $200,000 in my first year. And I turned that down to pursue Wonderite with Peter. Uh, it was a lot more exciting to me. And I thought there was a lot of potential with it. So that's kind of a synopsis of my, my background. And I'll let D, uh, Peter kind of dive into to his story. Awesome. Yeah. So not too similar to Joe, you know, graduated 2010 with a degree in math. I was always somewhat of a technical person and really just bought a one-way ticket to Europe and uh, was working in Europe for a little bit, traveled around the world for six months, you know, had been to over 37 countries at a young age, dual citizen of Sweden, met my wife abroad and just really having a good time. And I kind of came back beginning of 2011, thinking maybe I'd get back on track to continue doing this adventure tourism stuff where you get paid to take students on trips around, scuba diving, hiking. And my dad, who owned an insurance agency, was kind of like, you know, Peter, you owe yourself, you owe it to yourself to take a look into this industry. It's a great industry. You have a great opportunity here. And I always hated insurance growing up because to me, it was, you know, I'm working in the basement of a family business and I'm stamping paper and turning the paper over. And it was just like very process focused. And I'm more of like a problem solver than a, a process person. But I, I took him up on it. And he took me to all these events around the country where there were business agency, insurance agency owners who would share best practices with non-competitors from across the country. Because if you're not a top 20 brokerage in the country, you know, how are you going to compete? Or top 100 brokerage, how are you going to compete? And the reality is there's over 38,000 agencies in the United States. That's, wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Put that in perspective. It's like for every Starbucks, 
there's three agencies. Oh wow! <laughs> so so um, yeah, so he you know showed me showed me the industry, and I got a sense of how, how large it was. There's a lot of change happening. At the same time, there's not a, not a lot of change happening at all, and the industry is kind of getting older. So started selling every kind of account I could sell. Moved from personal to commercial. Did everything in the agency similar to Joe. So I kind of had hands on at every role, and. Um, at one point, you know, I'd written some of the biggest deals we've done through some like a gap analysis, really digging deep into business owners, insurance, and figuring out what they really needed from a technical perspective, and was able to have them fire long-term relationships they had with their agents that they you know played golf with or went to high school with. Not an easy job, but when they realized that somebody was kind of taking advantage of a relationship and not doing a, a, the best thing for their business, they're ready to move. And sorry to interrupt, but just uh, this is a noob question of mine. By agency, like we do, we get our business insurance through Farmers. So Farmers is one of those 38,000. Am I thinking about that right? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. One of the things we've done in building this business is map out what is the insurance industry. And it's the fourth largest industry in the United States. It's like the property and casualty is like, I think, 7% of GDP. So it's pretty big. And it's really a complex value chain. Now, so with farmers, are you working with an agent directly? Yeah, it's not on a regular basis. But, you know, when we first signed up for business insurance, we worked with one agent. Yep. And we communicate with that agent, say, like on a yearly basis, basically. Okay. Yeah. So on the value chain, I mean, you have the consumers at the top. You have a combination of direct insurers like a Geico. You have some captive agents like maybe a state farm or all state you have some independent agents. And so it sounds like maybe, you know, yours might fall somewhere in between like a, a captive agent or a direct insurance company. My dad's company is one of the 38,000 independent insurance agents. Yep. What that independent means is they're not really held to only one contract. They can represent multiple insurance companies. Got it. Yeah, so I got involved, got a bunch of these designations that are recognizable. I was involved with the independent insurance agents and brokers of America lobbying in D.C., on things like flood insurance, terrorism insurance, and kind of had a really a, a good overall picture of, of the business. And at some point, you know, bought into my dad's business. And I started calling, rather than just doing the thousands of cold calls and emails to try and solicit business, I started calling other agents to see if I could buy their business and wrap them up into hours. And I got pretty far on the process with another agency nearby. I had a lot of fun doing that. And I thought, look, if I'm going to do this long term, kind of like to Joe's point, you know, being in the business for the next 30 years... I should probably go get an MBA. And so did the entrance examination, the GMAT did pretty well. And like Joe, got a couple of full scholarships and selected BC based on the fact that I wanted a strong regional network. Boston College is known as being like a, a strong regional network uh, kind of school. And so really went to some business school with the idea of like, maybe I can execute in some of these business ideas that I had because I was kind of using technology in my day-to-day to make my life easier. Mm-hmm. If I just back up to my high school years, you guys probably remember the game uh, Halo. Oh yeah, yeah. I still play it. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think they just released like the next like Halo Six or something. I don't really play video games anymore, unfortunately. But at the time, my brother and I played a lot, and we created a website called ModHalo.net, yep. and the focus was to help other people modify the gameplay. Not so much to cheat, but more to just like maybe you wanted to take the the warthog or the jeep and turn it into a hovercraft. And um, maybe you wanted to put a stationary gun turret somewhere at one of your bases. And so we were doing XML changes and hex swapping so you could take, turn a pistol into a sniper rifle. And that website grew to over 20,000 members. 
And then another thing that was annoying for me was seeing ads. You probably remember AOL Instant Messenger, AIM. Yep. And I, yep. I spent many late nights texting my friends from school on there and they had these ads on it. And so I dug into the user interface and hacked out the ads using Resource Editor. And I also found some ways to like find my, my hashed password on a local machine and was able to like store that because I forgot my password and did different things with hacking AIM. And people used to text me because they found my website and they were like, how can I hack my ex-girlfriend's password? And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Um, I created and taught a, a web design class in high school with a classmate of mine. called, and the web, and We taught this class to like fellow classmates our senior year of school. And then him and I together also built a website called Bulletproof Links, which was a, a, a resource for web designers back in 06. And um, it got picked up by Wired Magazine like online. So we were kind of excited. We were you know, still in high school at the time. Didn't recognize how important all this tech stuff was, but you know, had a, a lot of fun doing it. So fast forward to business school, and I kind of had like this foundation of being hacky and building stuff and was kind of ready to um, execute on the business idea. Met Joe, met a number of students, and things just took off like a lot faster than I really expected. I think before I just didn't understand like the whole entrepreneur ecosystem. I was excited about it. I, you know, I followed Y Combinator since 2008 or 9, but didn't really understand like how fast things could kind of take off in the right environment. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like you really kind of took on, you know, how people say in tech and entrepreneurship, you know, fix the, fix the problem that you deal with on a regular yeah. basis. So you kind of have really done that multiple times, it sounds like, since you were young. At what point did you decide, okay, you know, I've had enough, you know, time to fix this with respect to insurance? Yeah, at what point did I decide that? You know, I, I started when I was selling insurance, probably. I kind of tell people I'm lazy, to your point about solving your own problem. I'm the kind of person, I'd rather spend eight hours like fixing a poor system than one hour just like going through the annoying process of dealing with that system. And so anytime there was one of these annoying things that I'm like, this can be much better. It just needs someone to think about it creatively. Yep. I would optimize for doing that. And so I started doing it on a regular basis. I mean, one example was I built an internal Wikipedia-like dashboard for our agency. So we have 20 employees. I think we had 30,000 hits internally one year. Oh, like, wow. like a year or two after I created it. Yeah. So I was building tools while I was in business. But the idea for Wonderwrite, I knew it was a bit more complex. And I, at the time, I just wasn't coding. I wasn't contemporary on the different frameworks. And so I just didn't want to try and tackle that problem. And when I went to business school, one of the things I wanted to do is not just meet a founder, meet a technical co-founder. Mm-hmm. I think everybody talks about this you know, in business school. There's an interesting article called Stop Looking for a Technical Co-Founder. Because like anybody who is technical enough and savvy enough and understands business enough is probably already building something. And so I just said, you know what, I'm just going to like go back to school and teach myself to program again. And was programming in procedural PHP, like writing these really, really long files, just to kind of build the MVP out, just because PHP was what I knew from high school, you know, self-taught again. And at Boston College, I met a classmate, an undergrad student who had a, a pretty successful startup that he's doing full-time now. And he's like, dude, why don't you just use Laravel? Like what you built is amazing. I have no idea how you could have built that without using like a full stack framework. And man, when I turned onto a full stack framework, that was like a game changer. Like very quickly, it was like, this is amazing. Like I could build anything. So you were um, probably able to get features out very quickly and kind of, you know, bug fix very quickly. 
Oh yeah. And, and now, yeah, like, I, I mean, I wasn't using GitHub before, but now like using GitHub and having like other people who can go in and do bug fixes and I can review it and it like get, it gets these fixes pushed to a staging environment and then pushed to production real fast. Like all these things I learned in the past, like, you know, year, year and a half just to accelerate our development. The tools today versus the tools from 13 years ago, I mean, they're night and day difference. Unbelievable. Yep. And I noticed uh, the front end looks like it's built in a, a Vue.js. Is that correct? Yeah. So, man, we have a number of things we've been working in. I think a year ago, it was like mostly Bootstrap. Now, you know, Laravel comes packaged with Vue somehow. And so we have a combination of, you know, Vue.js. Uh, I think maybe our very front end, we use Gatsby, which is a, like a JavaScript, like a JavaScript front end framework with Prismic, which is a headless CMS. Okay. Great. Okay. So with respect to Wonder 8, would love to understand a bit more with in kind of like a granular sense. So what the with respect to some broad problems overall with the insurance industry, what are some of those problems that Wonder 8 is solving? Yeah. So I think the immediate problem that I had when I was selling these business accounts is I would spend up to four years to develop a relationship with like a decision maker. And then try and win their business by doing this in-depth gap analysis or whatever the thing was. And once we once they decided, like, yes, I'm ready to do business with you, the first thing that I would do is I would fill out like four hours of paperwork, which added. And, and I wasn't just meeting with the CFO; I was meeting with the CEO. I was meeting with the, the like the head of HR, the CIO, and I'm asking the CIO questions like, "Do you have a firewall?" And they're looking at me like, yeah, what stack are you talking about? Like, you know, like explain this question. And I'm like, <laughs> yes or no question. <laughs> and so like, obviously this is not adding any value to anybody's life. And even the, like the underwriters who'd get this, because, and I'm literally filling this out on paperwork, right? Because that's the fastest way to do it in 2017. Um, and so this whole, like, it's just a, a bad experience. It doesn't provide like really great data for insurance underwriters to like, price the risk based on. And so I just wanted to like take this process and make it a lot faster and more intuitive, kind of automate the mundane bookkeeping part. According to McKinsey, it takes up to 20 weeks for medium businesses to buy insurance. And that was kind of the problem that I felt firsthand is the problem that's been validated by conversations with agents across the country. And th- you know, this isn't exactly like a you know really small business, mom pot kind of company. This is on larger small accounts or middle market accounts. And the reason is just there's a lot of back and forth in the process. Even if it's digital with email and PDF and Excel spreadsheet, it's still fundamentally, you know, it's still like a, a digital equivalent of, of a paper-based process. So that was really like the main problem that we're looking to attack. Now, there's a, like a, obviously a lot of other things that pop up when you're attacking that one problem and probably don't have enough time to kind of dive into this podcast. But that's the main thing is just how do we take this mundane process and like automate a lot of that and just make it make insurance more of a wonderful product like part of the reason i the company's called wonderwrite it's a portmanteau of the german wunder like like a prodigy or like miraculous and then underwriting and really we really want to just bring the wonder back to insurance um i do believe it's a wonderful product and um when truly like when it truly does what it's designed to do it can save businesses and we're doing we dealt with this with a customer recently or we, we, uh, who, who had this crazy ransomware and was paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, like decrypt their customers' files. And like the insurance, I believe, is going like, to save this person's business wow. in some regard. And so like, yeah, when you, when you see insurance do what it's supposed to do, it is a wonderful thing. Yep. 
And with respect to automation, you know, what areas within the, I guess I'm just trying to understand the workflow. Like you, you work with a customer to kind of automate parts of their workflow. What are those parts? Yeah. Like what are some examples? So uh, essentially at a high level, how it works is we're selling WonderWrite to agents. And so if the agent is working with a customer on an application or renewal, you know, in the past that was all done manually by pen and paper or, you know, PDFs and email. What WonderWrite does, it's this online risk profile that the agent and the end customer collaboratively work on. Uh, it's very kind of easy to understand intuitive interface that we have. The agent invites the end business customer onto the platform and the data collection process happens there. And we take, a, you know, that's digitizing the process. The automation comes in and instead of having to know every data point on the property to underwrite, you know, the risk there, all you're doing is typing in your address. And we're pulling in 100 data points, like distance to coat, where's the fire, uh, closest fire station. You type in a VIN number and we're pulling in year, model, make, and 100 other data points on the vehicle. Got it. So we're doing that across cross lines, basically anything that you have at your company that you may need insurance on, you know, we're bringing that into Wonderwrite and we're kind of automating a lot of that process, doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Once all that data is on our platform, then we're able to send it over to uh, the underwriter. Right now, that's done by exporting the data onto an Accord industry standard PDF. That's the existing workflow that we're working within. So we export to the PDF, we send that over to the carrier we're kind of working in long-term vision is to integrate directly with the carrier system. So the data is just flowing back and forth. Yeah, that's really interesting. Is there like a human being that has to look over the data that's been kind of pulled in automatically? Is there someone that still needs to check that? Yeah. I mean, the term underwriting comes from Lloyd's of London, which was a tea shop that wanted to sell more tea in the 1600s. And basically it was... We have like this ship going to this place with this captain, this crew, and here's what we think they're going to make for money. Almost like an early form of venture capital, right? Mm -hmm. But the the underwriters were literally people who would look at the manifest and they would sign their name underneath it after thinking through all the data and like, do I want to take this risk? Okay. They would literally write their name on a piece of paper at the bottom and that's how you get underwriting. And it still requires people to kind of look at this at some level today. I mean, what happens if you're tearing down a house and building a brand new one? Like, yeah, there might be a lot of data that's out there, but the data is wrong. And so if you're going to work with an agent who's really going to do a good job, like the most important part of risk management is identification. Like you can't treat risk that you haven't yet identified. Mm -hmm. And if what you're doing is just relying on third-party data that you know may or may not be correct, then you haven't done your job to identify and underwrite risk appropriately. That said, I mean, a lot of this data is probably accurate. And for the most part, it's good. But yeah, it's definitely valuable. I mean, I loved it in my risk management class. Like one of the ways that you do risk management, they call it like management by walking around. Like if you run a business, what can you discover just by walking around and talking <laughs> to people on the floor? Like it's amazing. <laughs> and so yeah, like it's absolutely cr- crucial to like have people looking at this, you know, today. I, I do think, and we can dive into this in a minute, but I, I do think long term... There's going to be like as 5G becomes a thing and as the industrial internet of things becomes a thing, there's going to be a lot more data that's available from devices, from vehicles, from Fitbits. And like all these data streams are going to be very valuable for underwriting. And that's kind of where I think our company is thinking about for the future is like, how do we, you know, how do we connect 
what we think is going to be the future of underwriting to insurance carriers and, and truly make it more of a financial transaction mm-hmm. and less so like a, like a sale. Yep. I guess along those lines, are there particular industry verticals that are that you're either focusing on or that are more open to digitizing their workflows? I mean, we haven't yet. Like in insurance, you can have like a niche sales organization. Maybe there's an organization that specializes in insuring school systems, for example. But right now, we're not trying to box ourselves into one of these niches. It's certainly like something for us where it's helpful to have those as starting use cases. But insurance is designed to be kind of a broad instrument. And we want to make sure we kind of work with insurance kind of end to end in the property casualty space at least. And what is your sales process like currently? Like how do you decide who to reach out to? Yeah, you know, we're, we're actually not really reaching out to sell the product to a lot of people. And the reason is we're refining the product. We want to make sure that the product is delightful and that people feel really good about what they're getting and what they're paying for. I always come back to, you know, I, I pay $5 a month for my Gmail for my business. Yep. And like I get a lot of value out of that for $5. Yes. And then you look at all the like the CRMs that are out there and all these different tools that most people and organizations use barely a fraction of them and they get like way less value or I don't know maybe they get they get value cuz they're paying for it, but I think with wonder I I want people to to pay a fair price but get a tremendous amount of value out of it. And to do that we really need to kind of hone in on what's the value they're getting. Does it really make their life like a lot easier than what they're using today. Because pen and paper, like it's not the best, but it, it's pretty efficient. And that's why it's still around. I guess given that the industry is still pretty entrenched in pen and paper, as you said, what's some of the pushback that you're getting? Is it the customers want to go digital but can't? Or is there some regulatory concern? Or what's your take on kind of pushback at this point? Yeah, so if you think of insurance, and if you think of the 38,000 insurance agencies across the US, they're probably not the most tech forward organizations. And you know that's probably the perception that you probably have, which is mm-hmm. largely true. So a lot of the customers that we've talked to or worked with, you go in and kind of exactly what you'd expect is, is how that company operates. So you might have a 50 person agency and there's a lot of, you know, for sake of you know, not knowing the better term, legacy staff that's using pen and paper for their current processes. So they immediately understand the value of one right. But our biggest competition right now is pen and paper. How do we get, you know, those users on board? So that's definitely somewhat of a challenge. But if there's two people to tackle it, you know, I, I think it's Peter and I. If you want to like learn how to implement change, take a course in change management, go work at a family business. Yep. You know, both Peter and I have done that and been very successful at bringing tech tools in-house to companies that, you know, prior to us being there hadn't changed in 30 years. So there's definitely an element of how do we implement change with one, right? They understand the value. How do we work with them to kind of move off pen and paper? And so there's definitely that element. On the other side, we are targeting agencies that are tech savvy. I think a sim- like a, a very typical story is 50-person agency. The father's looking to retire. The son is a recent college grad worked there for four or five years. He's very tech savvy, realizes that he does not have the tools he needs to sell insurance. He's going to be taking over the business and kind of wants to bring in tools like OneRight and will be you know, an advocate and an influencer and change implementer in the organization. 
kind of targeting, you know, situations like that where we have people that can use a product and maybe teach others within the organization how to use it. Yep. Are there particular case studies that you guys are pretty proud of? Either convincing a customer, bringing on kind of a, a larger customer, anything that you're kind of proud of on that you've accomplished through Wonderwrite recently? Yeah, I think uh, presenting at a trade show in Massachusetts, just, in, in, you know, I guess the reasoning is there, I kind of had that, I, I write my goals down a lot. And that was one of my goals when I was in business school is like, get a table at this trade show. And it sold out. And then like literally the day before on my birthday at seven o'clock at night, when I'm taking everyone out to dinner, they call and they're like, hey, there's an opening in this trade show right at the door. Do you want it? And I'm like trying to make this decision fast. And I decided, you know what? It was a goal. Let's just do it. Not so much because I'm trying to like go to market, but just because I, I wanted to have that presence to kind of achieve my goal. And anyway, talking to a lot of agents during the trade show that walked by and one of the agents on the spot was like, wait, you can just like automatically fill these forms in for me? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, I want it. <laughs> and I'm like, great. Like we can sign you up today. He's like, I want it for homeowners insurance, which, you know, we hadn't built it out for homeowners insurance because I really, the problem really emanated from commercial workflow. But I knew intuitively from my own experience, like, look, anytime I'm going to write insurance for a customer of mine, I always want to try and like lock up their, their personal insurance as well. If nothing else, because that way it just is going to make their life easier and, and they're going to need to spend less time thinking about that. If you have the person you trust on your business to also like take care of your, your personal stuff. And so I always wanted to build this workflow, but I never had a second opinion to like justify my time in doing it and kind of that MVP mindset. But now I had a customer who was ready to pay only for that workflow. So I went out, you know, mapped out the process that I kind of knew from my own experience and kept connecting with this gentleman to make sure that we were going to work within his scope, basically. And they're onboarded today. I think they have eight people using it. And their, their goal is to do about 2,000 homes a year on Wonderwrite. And in every home they're doing, it's, I mean, it's saving them you know, 30 minutes to an hour. That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's like real manpower, you know, when you think about what you can save them. And so, I mean, it's still in the early stages of them using it. They're still figuring it out. They're still kind of finding bugs to my you know, chagrin or whatever. But we're, you know, we're excited for that because that's really the goal is we want to sell a software that people get a lot of value out of and they're like happy to pay us for. I guess maybe we can move a little bit on to the business model side. So that particular customer is paying you currently. As, mm -hmm. And do you give them, I guess, some kind of discount for being an early adopter or something like that? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, we wanted to make sure that people were willing to open up their checkbooks and write a check that, you know, they, you know a lot of times with these small businesses, I think business owners, they, they kind of think about expenses as like, is this like a vacation trip? Is this a new car? Like, is this a new iPhone? Yep. And I wanted to make sure that they were going to write a check where it was like, I'm not just parting with this money because I don't care. Like, this is a dinner. This, this is a little bit, this is like a nice vacation or like a nice weekend away. Or like, this is a new phone or computer or TV or something in the house. You want to make sure they're willing to spend that money and part with it because they, they're actually bought in and see the value in the product. So we're charging them. But yeah, we, we definitely like, look, I think the value they're getting is tremendously more than what they're paying for it. And so we're, we haven't perfected the pricing model yet. We prefer to, discount the product in recognition that they're going to find some challenges along the way and they're going to be spending some time and giving us their valuable feedback. And so there's value to them, to them as a customer for that. So yeah, certainly you know, discounted pricing from what this will be you know, in the yep. future. Yeah, we, we, we've charged both 
you know, kind of a SaaS subscription fee at the agency level and then kind of the per agent user level. I've toyed with both. And there's definitely other strategies that we're considering too as far as pricing once we kind of hit the growth phase. Yep. And how are you going to decide between the two, I guess? I mean, those are two kind of different type of pricing models. I guess what set of decisions will kind of lead you down the path you want to take? One of the things Joe and I have done across the board is we've been extremely scrappy. You know, we're bootstrapping, 100% bootstrapped to date. And we've leveraged the Boston ecosystem of universities very heavily. And so we've leaned back on all our business school professors who like you know, write business papers on pricing strategies. Yep. And we've had calls with them to kind of think through this. And the, I think the key theme that we're looking for for the pricing is that like a company or a user should pay for the level of value they're getting out of the product. And you just have to figure out a way to kind of structure that. And so we have some ideas about like, you know, what are the, what are the 90% of the features you can basically give away? And then the 10% that customers are going to be grudgingly be like, yeah, I guess I have to convert to a paid customer because I absolutely need that yep. feature. So we're still kind of figuring that out longer term for once we hit the growth phase. And I guess along the competition side, what does the competitive landscape look like? So I guess you just kind of start with insurance is like a big space. It's kind of a sleepy industry. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about the industry. You know, we, a lot of the, we've even talked to VCs and, and they're like, like, wait, why couldn't like, you know, Google just do this? Or why couldn't like, you know, XYZ consumer company do this? And it's like, well, it's, it's a pretty big industry. It's a little bit more complex than that. And I think that from a competition perspective, We've definitely run into a few companies that have some pretty similar ideas in their workflows, but it's a really, really big space. Yep. And so the, the question becomes, strategically, is this a winner-takes-all marketplace with like, where there's a network effect? So you look at like, you know, Google Search versus Bing Search. There are case studies written about that, where they're like, no, Google Search gets better with the more people that use it and the more advertisers that are on it. Therefore, there's a network effect, and it kind of becomes this winner-takes-all marketplace. Similarly, like with operating systems or, you know, whatever, there's like the standardization, there's a network effect. Insurance, there's 38,000 agencies and there's 2,000 insurers. And so there's not like, we don't think there's like this winner takes all marketplace. We think there's definitely room for multiple companies to, to thrive. And really the biggest competition that we have is just like people doing business the way that they've been doing it for 20 years. The customers we've talked to, most of them have never heard of some of the competitors that are out there. I do think just trends in general in insurance, you know, on the one side, you have private equity companies that are investing a lot of money to roll up a bunch of small mom and pie agents who are looking to get out of business. And so like, that's something you got to consider is who are we targeting as customers? Are they still going to be around in five, 10 yep. years? Because are they selling out to these PE shops? Or are we targeting the new guys who are maybe leaving a, a captive or direct insurer to go start their own independent agency? Like, is that our next customer? So that's one pressure you have. And on the other side, you have venture capital and insure techs, and they're trying to like create things and change things differently. And so you have a couple of these pressures on either side. And I think I think we're well positioned based on, you know, to Joe's point, you want to take a class and change management, go run a small business. Like we're both very well, you know, positioned from understanding the insurance industry at depth, understanding like accounting and finance and how that all plays out into insurance. So I, th- I think the biggest competition we have is just our own failure to execute on the opportunity that's at hand. Or maybe the customer's you know, failure to adopt the technology in a time that makes sense with our timeline. I guess along the lines of what you were talking about earlier, where the uh, I think one of the coolest part of this product is that it kind of draws data from external sources to programmatically fill out uh, paperwork. Am I thinking about that right? Yes. 
Yes. Okay. I guess as far as network effects go, uh, I don't know if you guys have thought about this, and I could also be off base, but you know, one potential network effect here would be you know the more agents that you bring on, the more sources of data that you'll have access to, and will know uh, where you're pulling from. So you might that kind of product will become more robust in terms of the data that you're able to bring in. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly hundreds of different angles you could look at it with. I think from the network perspective, I, I've, and I've had similar thoughts and conversations with Joe and our strategy professors to be like, is there a network effect here or is there not? I think the answer is probably not. I think with the data sources, likely there are going to be a lot of data providers that are out there. This, that's an industry that's going to be its, its own industry and it's not going to make sense to vertically integrate. It's going to make sense to just pay a provider of data. Yep. And so I think while it's certainly possible that, yeah, you might have some proprietary data as like an insurance technology vendor, that data is probably more value, valuable on a standalone basis in a non-consolidated you know, industry, non-vertically industry, integrated. Yep. It's going to make sense for that to be like, you know, monetized for multiple reasons. And, and an insurance provider is just one consumer of that data. So you mentioned you guys are currently bootstrapped, which is awesome. Uh, are you looking to raise capital at some point soon? Or do you want to stay bootstrapped? How are you thinking about that? I think the, the goal for us is continue to get as far as we can without taking money because that will help us basically kind of value the problem. And then we, you know, we are building relationships with different types of finance, whether it's strategic capital, venture capital, you know, angels, friends, family, and I think I think the goal is just get as far as we can so that when we go to tell the story, we're going to be as compelling as possible. I'd much rather have a pitch deck that was like four slides, you know, like here's our business, here are the metrics of like you know unit economics of how, what it takes to sell this software, and here's what it looks like five years from now. And, and if like if the math makes sense and we have data to back it up, it's be a much more compelling story than like here are some trends we're seeing. We think it could go this way, but we need millions of dollars to build it. Right. And I think Peter and I are in a very unique position in that we're graduating with our MBA with no debt. You know, we've saved up some money over the past eight to 10 years. We have a runway bootstrapping that most first-time entrepreneurs would not have. And from our own perspective and from talking to other, you know, entrepreneurs and potential investors, their feedback is, you know, run with that. So that's definitely part of our strategy. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, what are you guys looking forward to next? You know, here, here's what I know, right? Insurance is fundamental to our economy and the financial system. It's like, it's crucial to supporting innovation. You know, from like, from sea voyages to routine sea travel, like none of that's going to be possible without a financier who's willing to back it. And in order for those financiers to feel comfortable taking the risk, they need some sort of an ecosystem where there's a structure that allows them to do that. Part of that ecosystem is having limited liability corporations that are going to like not make them go bankrupt if the venture fails. And part of it as well is to like buy insurance to make sure that if something bad goes happen, the company's not going to immediately go out of business. And if you just like think about insurance, next time you're walking to work, right? Like every car you walk by, every bus, every train, every building, every business, every person, like literally everything you see, you look up in the sky, every airplane, like they all have insurance on them. So when you think about like the economy's a scale of insurance, it's absolutely enormous. And, um, if five years go by, we're still doing things the same way, like with pen and paper. Like we've fundamentally done something very wrong. I think that you know, insurance is like fundamentally, it's a community good. 
because it's really it's us supporting each other. And it's just like, what's the expense load that we as an industry are incurring to serve the community? It's fundamentally like this financial transaction. And it's, it's really the least efficient of financial marketplaces. For every dollar you pay in premium, you're only really getting like 50 cents back over the lifetime of that insurance policy. And that's not really a great deal. And so, you know, I'm excited about as like the industrial internet comes online and like 5G comes online, I think there's gonna be a lot of change. And one of those is gonna be how do we underwrite business? I think it's just, it's gonna be trans- transformative. And I think where we are right now, trying to understand and plug into the existing workflow of underwriting and also having like a keen sense of like where are things gonna go in the future and trying to develop the company in such a way that we think we're well positioned for that. I think that's gonna put us in a good place to have a more efficient, way to underwrite and basically transact this financial transaction to continue to help businesses and entrepreneurs and financiers take risks to help to continue to like protect families, feel comfortable with like the lifestyle they have. So that's where I'm excited about for the future and looking forward to. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at QuantLayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.